welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary, the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. Do you want to hear the gospel of what is happening now? Now, that's just a common lingo way of putting it. Do you want to hear present truth? Do you want to hear the gospel in terms of the setting of what our current needs are to prepare us for Jesus' coming? We want that kind of a gospel, don't we? The gospel is the everlasting gospel. It's always been the same for people before the cross as well as after the cross. Everyone is saved by the blood of Jesus who died for everyone's sins upon the cross. But there is such a thing as understanding the everlasting gospel in terms of the times in which we live. And we are living at the very end of the great controversy, and a great crisis is brewing right now and is in full uh, uh, bore where Satan is trying to prevent and delay the second coming of Jesus indefinitely. Unapologetically, we are not a seeker-sensitive church. We are not a user-friendly church. By that I mean we don't survey you and say, now what do you think the gospel is so that we can know what to teach you that will scratch you where you're itching. I don't think you would want a gospel like that. I don't think human beings know what they need. Only God can read the hearts. And only God knows what we need. And so, no, we don't survey the congregation in order to learn what the gospel is in the midst of people. We don't survey human wisdom in order to know what to preach on Sabbath. We earnestly ask God to reveal to us what is the everlasting gospel in its current application. What do we need to know in light of the fact that Jesus is coming soon? That's what we mean by that. And in so doing, we believe that God knows what your hearts are needing. And God meets those needs in terms of the wonderful good news of the gospel so that uh, it, it satisfies your soul and that it feeds you. Now, we're facing a, a crisis in terms of the delay of Jesus' coming and I've put it in the form of a question here this morning for our study, for your contemplation. Has the blessed hope uh, become naive? In other words, has the soon proclamation of the soon coming of Jesus, in light of a long delay here, has that just become a naive thought? And when we talk about the blessed hope, as Paul writes about it there in Timothy was read to us in our scripture. The blessed hope means that we love the thought that Jesus is preparing us to see him come in the clouds of glory soon and we don't have to go into the grave and be resurrected. That's the blessed hope. Our name, Seventh-day Adventist. Adventist. That's a message in itself, isn't it? A message of the second visit of Jesus to, to this earth. Our message this morning is on the second coming, on the theme of the second coming. Now, if our forefathers hadn't built the soon coming of Jesus into our church name, we wouldn't be embarrassed a century and a half uh, of delay since uh, this word's started to be proclaimed back in 1844. The servant of the Lord whom God gave to us through uh, the Holy Spirit's gifts, back in 1850, Ellen White wrote this, that time is nearly finished and that time can last but a very little longer. 1850, here we are in the year 2009. 
There's a question of credibility there. She said, time is almost finished. Again, in 1904, she said, the Lord is coming very soon in the Adventist Review, January 2, 1992. Well, there's a credibility issue here. How do we understand this great delay in the coming of Jesus? It's not just Ellen White. It's the Lord Jesus himself who prophesied. Look at Matthew chapter 24 with me. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 29. It says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the long 1,260 years that ended in uh, 1798, Tribulation of the persecution of God's people during the dark ages. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Have these predictions of Jesus been fulfilled? Well, the dark day was May 19, 1780. You can read about it in the book Great Controversy. And the falling of the stars was November 13, 1833. And within that generation, the last of those signs of the falling of the stars, 1833, the Lord uh, gave a wonderful message in 1844 of the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary that was intended to prepare people for his second coming. Now, Jesus goes on to say this. Then the sign of the Son of Man, I'm reading now Matthew 24, verse 30. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. When? After the dark day, after the falling of the stars. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And then all of the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Amen. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. And now, verse 34. Assuredly, are these words in red letter in your Bible? Whose words are they? This is Jesus' prophecy, correct? Assuredly, I say to you, this, what? will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Now, there's a credibility issue with Jesus' prophecy. It was a dark day. It was a falling of the stars. All that happened in 1833. The Lord did his part by sending the message of the cleansing of the sanctuary in 1844. It was God's people's great disappointment that took place that Jesus didn't come in 1844. Then Jesus sent a message of revival and reformation of the love of Jesus to prepare people, his people for the second coming in 1888. And 170 years later, we still sit here on earth. Was Jesus a false prophet? That generation, he said, would see his coming. Well, just to help clear this up, I don't want to leave the impression to you that Jesus is a false prophet. I don't believe that. But I do believe that Jesus' prophecy, as well as other prophecies, are conditional upon the response of the people. And let's talk about that together just now, if we will. The reason I've brought this to your attention is that it was God's intention to have sent Jesus a long time ago to this earth on his second visit, okay? Something has happened, and we want to understand why, what has happened, and why the delay. Today, the, Christ, the, the issue is of crisis proportions. We have young Adventist Christians who attend our universities and our colleges who are very perplexed, and I'll just quote to you some of their comments in... Uh, in Adventist journals, in the Adventist Review, for example, of 1992, we read this. 
about Adventist college students. We have mixed thoughts and feelings from hearing predictions that the second coming might happen in the next 10 years or that it might not happen in our lifetime at all. We are a generation of non-conviction when it comes to Jesus' second coming. One student said, I can't imagine it ever happening in my lifetime. Well, if such comments like that had been published uh, in the Adventist Review, say, a century ago, I think it would have evoked a, a storm of protest from the readers of the Adventist Review, don't you? To them, such non-conviction would destroy the church like termites that are burrowing into the church from within. And neither can we get off today get off the hook by comfor- comfortably redefining what it means to believe in the second coming as maybe it's some kind of a nebulous event that is way far off in the distant future. Uh, Webster's Dictionary, New World Dictionaries, tells the word that the word Adventism means the belief that Christ's second coming to earth and the last judgment will soon occur. As the decades roll by, it is only natural that thoughtful Adventists should explore ways to apologize for this long-expected great disappointment. In recent memory, a Sabbath school quarterly suggested that the second coming began at Pentecost and that it has been going on ever since as the Holy Spirit comes and brings conversion to those who are born again. That's redefining the second coming as a personal coming of the Spirit to each one. Voices within the church say that the last days, sometimes we've read this, that the last days began with Christ's resurrection, uh, which cast doubt upon the whole scheme of the 1260 years that followed the time of the uh, end in 1798. So we can see here that soon has become a very flexible term, and it might even mean centuries after the Lord's messenger said that time is nearly finished. A Union College student admitted in the Adventist uh, Review, I really don't think we can have any idea of when he will come. Well, there's a logic of realism that forces itself on the thinking of youth. They know that parents and their grandparents and even their great-grandparents fully expected that soon meant soon and that Christ would return within their lifetime. They saw all of the signs that said so. In fact, the signs they saw made it seem nearer to them than it does to us now. Is there a solid basis for a genuine Adventist belief today that can make sense of this long delay? Can today's youth genuinely recapture the blessed hope of our youthful pioneers as they understood it? Or is the thought of the blessed hope naive? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, we've introduced a very serious question today, a very serious issue, and we don't know the answer to it. And we pray that you will give us wisdom from the inspired record that will help us to understand present truth of the gospel as we're living in these crisis times. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's reassert and familiarize ourselves with some established things regarding God. Number one, we believe that God's character has not changed from what it was 2,000 years ago when he revealed himself in Jesus Christ. Amen? This same Jesus... The angels said to the apostles after Jesus' ascension, This same Jesus will so come in like manner as you have seen him go up into heaven. Remember those words in Acts chapter 1 and verse 11. Paul says that in flaming fire he will take vengeance on his enemies in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8. How do we understand that? He will take vengeance on his enemies. Will he be some kind of a bloodthirsty tyrant 
with a celestial machine gun that come, he comes with in the clouds of heaven along with the angels just to mow down his enemies in a hateful revenge? Is that it? We've been studying in the first letter of John, and John is filled with God is love, correct? Repeatedly, God is agape. Now, does that mean that all of a sudden when Jesus comes, he changes his character? He's no longer love. He's just some kind of a revengeful tyrant that mows down his enemies with a machine gun. We do not believe that because God is the same. Christ must still be love when he returns. Amen. He is agape when he returns. Now, James and John, they wanted to call down fire from heaven to wipe out those unbelieving Samaritans. But what did Jesus say? No, he said. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to do what? And so when Jesus comes the second time, he does not come for the purpose of destroying men's lives. It's the same Jesus. Well, why the apparent change? At the second coming. After all, didn't we just read here, Paul says, in flaming fire, he's going to take vengeance on his enemies. Why this sudden change? The reason is, if you look at Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 29, at the end of that verse, it says that our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. His personal presence is a consuming fire. Have you ever uh, put a dish with a plastic spoon into a microwave? You can do that and get away with it, right? No problem. But have you ever put a dish with a metal spoon into a microwave? What do the microwaves do with the metal spoon? They attack it, don't they? And there are sparks that fly. The personal presence of God is not destruction to his people when he comes. Why? Because they have believed Jesus and they have chosen along with him to eschew evil and sin, but his personal presence when he comes for the wicked is that they have not eschewed evil and it becomes destruction to them. Those who have made a final choice to cling to sin are like that metal spoon in the microwave. The personal presence of love destroys them because they have clung to sin like a vine clings to a tree until both of them are one. And they simply cannot endure to look into the face of Christ. It's interesting that in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 10, we are told that the lost are tormented in the presence of the Lamb. Now, that does not mean that Christ enjoys the spectacle of tormenting uh, those who do not believe in him like the medieval inquisitors just enjoyed tormenting uh, their victims. The Greek word, enopion, literally means before the eye. And so as the wicked look upon into the loving eyes of the Lamb, their torture is entirely self-inflicted. Yes. It is not inflicted by the Lamb. The Lamb looks upon them with love and pity, but they see in his eyes a terror, and it's self-inflicted. Because their unrepentant state, they cannot endure to look into the eyes of the one they have crucified. The point is, I think it makes sense, doesn't it, to get rid of sin now instead of then. But someone may say, well, yes, I'd like to get rid of sin, but it's just too deep within me, and I don't see how I can ever overcome it. The problem is the reason why Jesus Christ is now serving as our great high priest in his final work in the heavenly sanctuary, and Jesus is busier than ever, fully apprised of what is happening in terms of the great controversy with your soul 
regarding Satan who wants to claim you. And he is ministering to you full-time, 24-7, his overcoming power from the heavenly sanctuary. He is interested in your overcoming uh, because he can give himself 100% to you just as he can to everyone else who desires that overcoming power. Heaven's total resources are ours. In this final day of atonement, sin can be removed from the heart, from the character, no matter how deeply it is ingrained in us. A mere forgiveness that excuses or pardons sin but leaves it intact is not good enough. When the Lord truly forgives a sin, dear friends, he takes it away and he also cleanses you with his power to overcome it. That's the true gospel. You want to hear the true gospel, don't you? The false gospel is justification by faith covers you legally, you're pardoned, and try to live a good life, and if you can't, you know, always do exactly what is right and keep the commandments, why, that's okay, because Jesus understands and he knows that you're just human, and, you know, he'll save you in your sin anyway. The true gospel is God forgives us of our sins legally, he justifies us, and he cleanses us and gives us overcoming power, which brings us into harmony with all of the commandments of God. That's the true gospel, righteousness by faith. The essence of Adventism insists that there's a difference between the personal forgiveness of sins and the final corporate blotting out of sin. The good news is that he will blot it out from us as a body, as a people, if we'll let him. And if we don't hinder him. Therefore, the only reason why the second coming has been delayed is because God's people are not ready to face his personal appearance. Sin is still in the heart. That would result in their destruction. And the Lord loves us too much to subject us to such a test unless we are ready for his coming. And so, just like the Apostle Peter says, Christ Christ delays not willing that any should perish. However, be aware that Jesus is a disappointed bridegroom. And rightly understood, the entire Bible becomes a love story. With the climax near the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 19 and verse 7, where there is a wedding that takes place because at last, finally, the bride makes herself ready makes herself ready. You know, Christ has long desired the day to come when he could be united with his bride because his love for his church is likened to a bridegroom for his bride. You can read about that in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 32. And that's why Jesus made sure that the book Song of Solomon was included in the Old Testament. He did that for a very definite purpose That is, to arouse our hearts to a sense of the full meaning of his love for his church. The second coming will not take place, will be to take, the second coming will be to take his bride to himself. That's his purpose for coming. The Father, we are told, has therefore not, has not predetermined. The Father has not set it on a big time clock in heaven, okay, When you hear that alarm, heavenly angels, when you hear that alarm, Jesus, that's your signal to know when to pack up your bags and leave for those folks down there on earth. The Father has not predetermined a fixed time like that because it's true that in his infinite foreknowledge, the Father knows the time, but for him to know is not the same as for him to predetermine it. What we mean is, for example, he knows who will eventually be saved and he knows who will eventually be lost, but he does not predetermine salvation or damnation for anyone. And Jesus expressly says that he himself 
And I don't fully understand this because I believe him to be the Son of Man and the Son of God, but there is some sense even now in heaven where Jesus has voluntarily self-limited his future knowledge because he tells us in Mark 13, 32, but of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. Jesus expressly says that he himself does not know the time of his coming. So the timing of the second coming is different from the timing of his first coming, his first advent. The first advent was definitely nailed down as to date in Bible prophecy, correct? But the second coming has not been definitely nailed down as to time and date. It is open-ended. And for us to confuse the two is to repeat the mistake of the ancient Jews who assumed that the prophecies of the two comings were the same. They believed, uh, you know, when the Messiah would come, that would be it. It was just one coming. They didn't see two comings. Daniel, indeed, foretold exactly when Christ should first appear as Messiah. And like the stars in the vast circuit of their appointed path, God's purposes know no haste and no delay, according to the Desire of Ages, page 32. But the love of God requires that the timing of the second coming is different. The love of God requires that the timing of Jesus' second coming must be different than the timing of his first coming. Because Jesus came whether they were ready or not. It was according to prophecy, time. The timing of the second coming, according to the loving Father, is dependent on his people making herself ready. According to Revelation 19, verse 7. Jesus further explained this point. He, remember he told a parable of a farmer who goes out and plants the seed, and when the crop is ripe, according to Mark 14, 29, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now look at Revelation 14 and verse 15. Revelation 14 and verse 15. Again, the image of a crop and a harvest. And the angel finally tells Christ, look, the time has come for you to go and to reap the harvest of the earth. He says, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap. And why? Well, is it because some big peg in the clock of heaven has triggered its predetermined alarm peg? No. The answer is found at the end of verse 15, Revelation 14, verse 15. For the harvest of the earth is what? Ripe. The bride has made herself ready. It's ripe. You see, we as God's people are not like ants who are floating on a log down a rampaging river with no involvement whatsoever in where we are going. Correct? We are told by the true witness to the Laodiceans, that we sit with Christ on his throne, which means sharing with him the administration of the finale of the world history. We have a role to play in the great controversy in helping Jesus finish it. Amen. We have a role in that. He has left the administration to us of the ministry of reconciliation, the plan of salvation, because in the time of the end, we are sharing his throne with him, and we are to be intimately involved with his final work as our high priest in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. That is, that our hearts are to be reconciled to him, and we are to share that ministry of reconciliation with the world. So there is something in God's, the heart of God's corporate people that is still enmity against him, that needs to be reconciled. 
and it's gone on unrecognized. More than this, the ministry of reconciliation assigned to them is going to have a very deep impact upon the world events, the final world events, because when once God's people's hearts are fully reconciled to him in love, there will be no holding them back. It will be a, a love, a zealous love that will possess them to take the message of the cross to the world and finish his work. He promises us that when that occurs, that he is going to send, when the bride makes herself ready, he is going to send divine agencies that are going to stop temporarily the wars and strife of this earth to give us a respite to evangelize the world. And right now you know that there are events in political and otherwise that happen that intervene with evangelism, Right? But when God's hearts are fully reconciled, God is going... And we get this from Revelation 7, verses 1 through 4. If God's people faithfully proclaim the sealing message, the sealing message of heart reconciliation, of love, His divine love unhindered in their hearts, we are told, He promises that the four angels are going to hold the four winds of the earth that the wind should not blow. There's going to be a respite, a time of powerful evangelism, the last thrust and outreach that will go to every soul on this earth. Amen. It must follow that it was not necessary at all for all of the uh, World War I's and II and all of the international conflict and the loss of life and the havoc and the agony that we have seen in our past century to have ever occurred, but our failure for many decades to proclaim the sealing message made it impossible for the four angels to hold the winds. The next perspective I'd like for you to see from the Scriptures is that the second coming becomes a rescue mission, and you are the object of the rescue. Because when that love goes out to the whole world by a people whose hearts are fully reconciled to him, the world will only be able to take it so long. And the angels will only be able to hold it so long. Because everybody will pretty much make up their minds like that, pronto. And then led by the two-horned beast that you read about in Revelation chapter 13, the people of the world will demonstrate a final rebellion against the Lamb by trying to rid the earth of them. And that will be the mark of the beast issue and the death decree. And this will be a planned, intentional re-crucifixion of Christ in the person of his living saints. The wrath of the Lamb will be a natural outcome of that. Jesus will come and visit this earth and rescue his bride from that. What bridegroom in his right mind would stand idly by while thugs would seek to kill his bride? It's it's unthinkable. In fact, the second coming of Christ then is as soon as we want it to be. Jesus, we've already seen, wanted it to be a long time ago, correct? According to his prophecy, has to be so. The second coming is as soon as God's people want it to be. That doesn't mean that a few individuals' selfish desire to go home to glory is going to bring it. It's not going to be just one or two individuals who really want Jesus to come that will bring it about. The heavenly bridegroom is not going to marry a child bride. She must grow up to the measure of the stature or the fullness of Christ into maturity. And this means a concern for him that transcends our natural-born concern for our own personal security. It will be agape-driven 
pure and simple, it will not be self-centered driven, eros driven. In other words, this bride will not be thinking about herself. It's obvious because she'll go out without any question and tell the whole world about the cross. That's what's driving it, correct? She'll no longer be thinking about herself. It will all be about him and that he might receive his reward. And such maturity of that bride will be a very intelligent, empathetic, entering into and identifying with Christ's yearnings just as a bride enters into her husband's desires. And if we must give it a name, that would be Christian perfection. That would be Christian perfection. But we have a bridegroom, and Ellen White tells us in Review and Herald, December 15, 1904, for now we have a bridegroom whose disappointment at the delay is beyond description. I'll tell you, if my bride-to-be had told me 39 years ago that we weren't going to get married for the next 40 years, I would have been disappointed because I thought she'd put it off too long as it was, from June till August. Now, can you imagine Jesus' disappointment? He wanted to get married shortly after 1844. And how long has he had to wait? until the bride makes herself ready. That's the answer. And so the bride-to-be, who seems so far seems to be pretty well content to be a child at the wedding, no individual or group of individuals, not one individual here or two individuals there can make up the bride in this wedding. It's going to take a body that makes the bride. Okay, this is very important. Because the bride is going to be the soon-to-be population of, a, of the mother of them all, who, which city is called what? The New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem, populated by God's people, the church is the bride. Ellen White says this um, in... Um, SDA Baba Commentary, Volume 7, 986. The church is the bride, the lamb's wife. Never should she indulge in any foolishness, for she is the bride of a king. Those are sobering words, aren't they? Yet she does not realize her exalted position, she adds. The church is a corporate body intricately fashioned, cohesively, of its members, many members, as the cells and the organs of one's body constitute a person. No one cell of the human body, or even an organ or a limb, matures on its own, apart from its corporate oneness with the body as a whole. So also is Christ, says Paul, For the body is not one member, but many. We are talking here about a corporate body, not an individual here or an individual there. An individual preparation for the second coming is proper, but there also has to be a preparation of the whole body of the church. Or each individual will have to go to the grave, as have countless others gone to the grave, throughout all of the past centuries. If a body is sick, does it affect the whole body? If a poor, it, Our dear friend Diane had cellulitis in her leg. Well, she had some other complications. Does that affect the whole body? It affects the whole body, doesn't it? So if there is a sickness in the church, You can't just say it doesn't affect me. It impacts the whole body. If there's a sickness of an individual here or there or of a church over there or a church over here, but somehow this church seems to be whole, it affects the whole body. It's a corporate whole. God's people do not go to heaven individually at death. Can you say a good amen? 
God's people do not go to heaven individually at death. That's what other churches teach. The church of the saints of the past are awaiting a resurrection. And they will go to heaven as a body with those who remain and are alive at his coming. We do not go to heaven as individuals. We will go, both those dead and alive, as a body. And until the body that's living is healed of its poison, those dead saints have to remain in their graves because they will not precede us. They will go with us. The Elijah message is forever linked with the doctrine of the second coming. It's impossible otherwise for us to understand the delay in Jesus' coming. Said Ellen White almost a century ago in Review and Herald, July 21, 1896, the great outpouring of the Spirit of God, isn't that what we are praying for, the latter rain? The great outpouring of the Spirit of God, which lightens the whole earth with his glory, will not come until we have an enlightened people. I can't tell you how, how shall I put it, how undiscerning our people are. They'll just about eat any kind of spiritual food that you put on the table before them. And without, and the only accountability for this is that uh, they become so conditioned to eating anything and everything that's put before them, both clean and unclean, is that their stomach just handles it and it passes through you know, it's about time that God's people grow up, that they become a people of discernment, that they say it's not any kind of righteousness by faith that'll do, but there's only one true righteousness by faith. It's not any kind of Christ that will do so long as it speaks religiously to us, but it's a true Christ that we need to know and not a false Christ. It's about time that God's people had some spiritual discernment, don't you think? And not think anything out there, you know, anybody who writes a book on Christianity will do. I can feed my mind on that without any judgment whatsoever. I think we have gotten to the point, perhaps, where we've made judgment a bad word. You know, oh, we shouldn't judge anybody. Correct. We shouldn't judge anybody in terms of their eternal salvation, but we can judge on the basis of spiritual discernment as to whether they teach the truth or not. And it's incumbent on us because the devil has all kinds of theories of righteousness by faith and gospels out there. It's incumbent on his bride to grow up. This message was in divinely intended This Elijah message that God gave to us as a people back in the 19th century to forever assuage the pain of our great disappointment of 1844. The message was specifically sent of heaven to prepare a people for the second coming. Dwight Nelson once aptly said, 1844 was our great disappointment in light of the fact Jesus didn't come as expected, but 1888 was his disappointment. There was a king who loved a humble maiden. The king was like no other king. Every statesman trembled before his power. No one dared breathe a word against him, for he had the strength to crush all of his opponents. And yet this mighty king was melted by love for a humble maiden. How could he declare his love for her? In an odd sort of way, his very kingliness just tied his hands. If he brought her to the palace and crowned her head with jewels and clothed her body in royal robes, she would surely not resist. No one would dare resist him. But would she love him? She would say she loved him, of course, but would she truly? Or would she live with him in fear, nursing a private grief for the life she had left behind? Would she be happy at his side? How could he know? If he rode to her forest cottage in his royal carriage with an armed escort, waving bright banners, 
That, too, would overwhelm her. He did not want a cringing subject that he loved. He wanted a lover, an equal. He wanted her to forget that he was a king and she was a humble maiden and to let shared love cross over the gulf between them. The king was convinced he could not elevate the maiden without crushing her freedom and resolved to descend. He clothed himself as a beggar. He approached her cottage incognito with a worn cloak fluttering loosely about him. He renounced the throne to win her hand. I wonder if we can recognize the true Christ when he comes to us. It will take some growing up and spiritual discernment. Oh, yes, we could do it if he came with a nice robe on and a chariot and all kinds of horsemen and attendants, but he does not choose to do that. That would be forcing himself on us, correct? The point is that Christ is also a lover. He's been rebuffed. He's been rejected by his true love. The supreme object of his regard on earth is his church. His high hope was that in union with his bride-to-be, he could lighten the earth with the glory of a message through which all the families of the earth would be blessed. Some dimensions of that divine disappointment can be grasped by just considering the Laodicean message in the light of its true source, The Laodicean message comes from the Old Testament book, The Song of Solomon. And in that poem, the true lover appeals to his sweetheart on a rainy night. It's a cold, rainy night, and she's already put off her work clothes and put on her night clothes and cleaned off her feet from walking around, shuffling on the dirt floor of her hut. And she's gotten under her mosquito netting and her her covers, and now she hears this knock on her door... And he has a need. He's wet. He needs to come in from out of the cold. He needs her, her presence. But the girl is only thinking of her own comfort and her own ease. And she says to herself, let him go away. I'm all ready. It's taken me so much. I don't know. Do you know, guys, how long it takes a woman to go to bed? All right, I won't say any more. <laughs> and she doesn't want to have to go through all of that again. I can be in bed like that. (laughs) But the bride is thinking about herself, you know. Finally, she arouses herself. She has second thoughts. I shouldn't have scorned him. I should have opened the door upon his immediate knocking. I'm ashamed that all I could think of was my own needs and myself. And so, at last, she gets up shuffles across the dirty floor and opens the door and no one is there. He's gone. And we have been praying for the latter rain for the last 170 years, trying to open the door our way. And every time we open the door, it's not there. Oh, if we just believe hard enough, if we name it and claim it, It will be ours, as if faith were some kind of a work by which we could obtain the Holy Spirit. Refer to last week's message on this point. It's only going to be through the principle of the message of the cross that God's people will recover its latter rain because God already began to give it to us in 1888, but it was rejected and scorned then. And it's only through this corporate repentance and understanding that we spurned our lover at that time, that we specifically know what our sin was as a body that continues to be perpetuated to this day, that we can make backtrack and do as the Jews should who are looking forward to a Messiah who has already come. How can a Jew be converted? By going back in their history and repenting for crucifying their Messiah. How can God's people recover its latter rain? By confessing we spurned our lover who came to bring it to us. And that means a crucifixion of self with Christ, that principle of the cross. It's a very humbling thing, and that's probably the reason why it's so difficult to bring ourselves to it. There's good news. 
God's grand sacrifice on his cross and his high priestly ministry will not, in the end, prove fruitless. Because an enlightened people, as Ellen White says, will surely understand how and why they have delayed his return, and they will respond to his appeal for repentance. It is not vanity, it is not vanity to talk about the second coming. Isn't it vanity to talk about the second coming? Let's say this right. Isn't it emptiness on our part to say we believe in the second coming when all the time we don't have an understanding of the message that will make us ready for its coming? It's vanity for us to pray for the Holy Spirit, for the soon coming of Jesus, if we don't have any comprehension of the message that will prepare us for the latter rain and for the coming of Jesus. Let me just illustrate it this way. Repentance, confession, is not just, oh, Lord, forgive us of everything that we've done that's bad, and thank you, and we hurry off and rush, and we think that covers the whole board for us. There is no intelligent confession going on there, is there? There is no recognition of what our specific sin is. Therefore, there is no healing for it because God does not treat us as robots. He treats us as intelligent, reasoning human beings who, if we recognize what he's convicting us of in our past history, then he can heal us of it. It is a wonderful message. It is not a condemnatory message. And so as... One little sister put it today. You know, I used to pray that the Lord would forgive me of all of my sins. She said, one day the Lord revealed to me this specific thing, this specific thing, this specific thing. And then she said, he he convicted me that I murdered the Son of God. Right? And I confessed each one specifically. That's coming into heart union with the Savior. And the beginning of this would be if we as a body of people could confess that it was my sins that murdered the Son of God. That would be the beginning of the humbling of the soul to receive the message of the cross. And I pray that for me as well as you. Well, this was not a user-friendly message. And you didn't seek it today as you came here. And maybe it wasn't sensitive to your need. But the Lord knows what your heart needs. And he comes to you as a lover and as a healer. And so may the message be a healing power for his whole people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.